Revelation 8, 1 to 13. This also is God's holy word. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. May we go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. <clears throat> Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for your word is truth, that your word gives us significant warnings. Father, we pray that we would heed them, that we would believe these warnings. Father, we pray that we would delight in Jesus Christ, that we would call upon him in faith, that even in the darkness, Father, that we would cling to Christ, who is the light of the world. Father, we thank you for your provision for us. We thank you that your son is true bread and true drink, that in him is eternal life. Father, we pray that if any are here who have not committed their lives to Christ, to trust in him, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work. Father, remind us of the hope that we have in the gospel, and may we cherish it more each day. We pray that Christ, your son, would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> If you've had children of your own, or you deal with people who act like children, or you deal with other people's children. If you have a toddler and they ask you for something, a cup of juice, a cup of milk, if you tell them not now, it's the same as telling them no, or never. That in five minutes even, if you tell them, hey, I'll get it for you in five minutes. Okay, that's, that's just five minutes. That's uh, uh, 300 seconds. It's still like saying no to them. Do you ever feel the same way as a toddler 
as a child that when you go to God in prayer, if he doesn't provide you an answer right away, that you walk away thinking, God didn't answer my prayer. He told me no. This is not so. It's not the case. God keeps a record of all the prayers of his children. We see even in today's passage, when the martyrs prayed and asked, when will you avenge the blood of the saints, avenge the blood of these martyrs, people who have lost their lives, that God gave them white robes and told them to rest a little longer. It's not as if he wasn't going to answer them. He did. He already planned to answer them. It was already in his grand plan. And here we see in Revelation chapter 8, this is really the answer. We see that in the, the prayers that, that were poured out onto the earth, that there was justice to be done. We understand uh, regarding Revelation that there is not a linear time frame, Revelation 4 to Revelation 22. It's not linear. It's, it's not a uh, unrepeating. It's, it's rather a recapitulation that these different uh, visions, these different scenes are in, in some ways giving us a, a little more understanding each time of, of what God's plan is, of what's happening. So there, there is some type of a repetitious cycle. Uh, there must be, because certain things that happen, uh, we, we realize that they can't have happened and then unhappen. So we see a, a repeating cycle. There are great promises regarding this book of Revelation. At the start of it, Revelation 1.3, there was the promise upon the blessing of the reading, the hearing, and the keeping of this book, that it ought to be read publicly, that we ought to read it in our homes. We ought to read it by ourselves. That there's a lot of imagery involved. That there are patterns, and there is the pattern of speaking of the final judgment to come. That this ought to be clear to all of us. That God is saying there will be a final judgment. There will be an accounting. So we have in this passage, Revelation 8, verses 1 to 13. The seventh seal opened with trumpet blasts is God's answering the martyr's prayer for justice and his announcing judgment on unbelievers. The seventh seal opened with trumpet blasts is God's answering the martyr's prayer for justice and his announcing judgment on unbelievers. We'll look at this in two points. The first, God's ans- God answers the martyr's prayers for justice in verses 1 through 5. And then second, the first four trumpet blasts in verses 6 through 13. <clears throat> so the first point, God answers the martyr's prayers for justice in verses 1 through 5. Let me read verses 3 through 5 again. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. We think through the various chapters that we've looked at of Revelation that began with the vision. John, the Apostle John in the island of Patmos, that uh, he was given a vision. 
that he wrote to the seven churches in Asia, uh, we know of as Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, that then we came to Revelation 4 and 5. Not only was there one seated on the throne, who is God the Father, who receives worship, but also the lamb that was slain. The lamb who was slain also is worshipped. The lamb was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll. He was the only one worthy to break open the seven seals. That in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea, there was no one who was worthy but the lamb alone. The opening of the scroll, the breaking of the seven seals, symbolic of carrying out God's sovereign plan. Every detail of everyone's life, down to the, the, the sparrow that falls to the ground, the hairs of your head that fall, and it includes the redemption of God's people and the judgment of unbelievers. We think through Revelation 6 also. There we have the account of the breaking of these seals. The first seal was the rider on the white horse who brings conquest. That there would be people who would come. That God would raise them up. He, brings up, he raises up one and he brings down another. These are the people who come with, uh, for example, Alexander the Great. Uh, the various Caesars. Each of the presidents, or whatever's the case, you think about it. People come. The second seal, the rider on the red horse, he brings war and conflict and discord. The third seal broken is the rider on the black horse with a pair of scales. And back then, when famine came, that food was measured out on scales and given. So famine would come, people would starve. The fourth seal, the rider on the pale horse, that eventually that rider brings death, and Hades follows after. The fifth seal was the predicament of the martyrs. Revelation 6, 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation 8 is the answer to that question. The sixth seal the cataclysmic events and the panic and the terror that comes upon sinful men on Judgment Day. That they were the ones who were calling out to the mountains and the rocks. They were asking, they were begging for an avalanche. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? This is interesting that here, these who dwell on the earth, who have spurned the good news of the gospel, that they are afraid of a lamb. Normally we don't think about lambs as, uh, as formidable creatures, but the Lord Jesus indeed is the one who comes. He will return with great power. The sixth seal references the final judgment. It points to the judgment. Then in Revelation 7, we have what seems like an interlude, an intermission from the power, the judgment, the carnage, the terror. <clears throat> it's, <coughs> it's God's provision for his people that he's saying, wait a minute, I hope you don't think that I've forgotten you. Revelation 7 was provided for the comfort of his people. God, where are we in all this? Are we forgotten? He says, no, you're not forgotten at all. You're accounted for. 
He talks about how his presence would be with us. That the lamb would be our shepherd. That he will wipe every tear from our eyes. That this is a good thing. That he guides us through all of it. Then we come to... uh, Oh, then he mentioned the matter of the seals. That he commands the angels to hold back the destructive winds. And he says that not until the servants of God are all sealed. The seal is a seal of protection. It's a seal of possession, marking ownership. It's a seal of proof of authenticity. And with sealing, God's people then are secure in Jesus Christ, who is the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And now we come to Revelation 8. We see that Revelation 8 relates back to the question of when. When will you avenge the blood of those uh, who dwell on the earth? That martyrs' lives were taken. That people who want to continue living in their sins, they don't want to be reminded of a judgment to come. They want that voice of conscience silenced. And the best way to do that is to silence the people who keep bringing it up, who raise the matter of God's word. God's immediate answer was that his people, these martyrs, should rest a little longer. He gave them white robes. They rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. So God is giving an accounting. You want to think about uh, good accounting skills, right? Some people have pretty bad accounting skills. Other people, quite good. God's accounting skills, flawless, perfect, right? He's, he's not going to leave anyone behind. That is, that is his immediate answer. But then we see that in this chapter, he's providing the long-term answer. There will be a final judgment. The prayers that are offered, that they amount to uh, what is poured out upon the earth. It begins with this verse 1. Verse 1 begins by saying, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. The silence is a foreboding of God's judgment. Zechariah 2.13 Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. When God acts, he doesn't choose to act so quickly right away. Oftentimes it seems like there's a great delay. Whether it be a year or 400 years or thousands of years, that a day to our God is like uh, a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. There is a known fear of silence. That there is diagnosed that people are afraid of silence. Perhaps you've met some of these people. They constantly have to have a background noise. They have to have a device going. They have to have a TV running in the background. And you're looking at some of these secular sources, even this week, the secular people have said that this silence, this fear of silence, is a reminder of solitude. When no one else is around, you're all alone. The solitude. And it's also a reminder of death. The latter points to judgment. Hebrews 9.27 And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. 
So there is a diagnosed fear of silence because it reminds us of our aloneness, of our solitude, and it reminds us of death and the judgment to come. You see that in Joshua chapter 6. Even as we read this uh, Revelation 8, perhaps you've noticed the similarities in the Exodus account, the plagues of Exodus, and also in Joshua, that the trumpets were there. And, and just so you know, uh, we're not thinking about the, the brass instrument with those three buttons, right? And I think there's probably some kind of a, a release for, you know, you have drainage of condensation. Not that trumpet. It's, it's probably some kind of a ram's horn, a, a shofar, so to say. There's, there's no buttons on it. Uh, but here, the, the trumpets... The silence then uh, that's mentioned in, in Joshua 6.10. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So Joshua is talking about a silence, that there would be silence as there's uh, a marching around. And then there will be a shouting in the trumpets. We see in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. See, mentioned twice in verses 1 through 5, uh, verses 3 and also verse 4, the mention about the prayers of the saints. These are, these are not special super-Christians. These, these are every believer is a saint. Every believer is a holy one, not because of inherent holiness, but because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. That it functions as a, the prayers go up like incense. They rise to God. These prayers were combined with fire and poured out on the earth, we're told. The angel poured it out. In there in verse 5, the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. We see that the, uh, the effect of it was that there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The significance of this, if you've read through Revelation, you see that the mention of the thunder, the flashes of lightning, and the earthquakes, that it's mentioned on several occasions. It's mentioned on several occasions, and they are signs that point to the final judgment to come. You see that in 11.19, Revelation 11.19, the seventh trumpet, and also in 16.18, the seventh bowl of wrath. Points to the judgment to come. We see that also in the Old Testament. There's repeated themes. Old Testament, um, Exodus 19 at Sinai. The peals of thunder, flashes of lightning, and the rumblings. The earthquakes, it was a sign of God's presence and his wrath. Here, what we're acknowledging is that when God's people ask, when will you avenge the blood of the martyrs? And God is saying, here, he's doing it. The prayers have risen up to God and that he commands the angel. He pours out the censer. And really, that's the prayers of the saints being poured out on the earth, and God's answers result in judgment. It's a reminder to us here 
regarding the importance of prayer. We tend to think of things such as power. God, we are weak. The world is strong. They lord it over us. They're the ones who have the money. They're the ones who are making all the decisions. What do we have? What you have is prayer. And it's not worthless. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It amounts to exactly what you're seeing here. The prayer is being poured out. Why is it that God insists that we, his people, are weak? He insists because if we were strong, then we wouldn't depend on him in prayer, would we? We would just flex our own muscles. We would write the, write the orders, right? We would make the commands. It's particularly that God wants you and I to realize his power, that he manifests it in our own weakness, that we must go to him in prayer because we have no other tool left that we must go to him in prayer, that we have no choice but to pray. We see the, the pattern and we see the power manifested in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, we see it in the apostles who came before. These were the same men who, when Jesus was arrested, they, they were like cockroaches. They ran under every single pot and, and every place they could hide, like they were fleeing from the light. They fled. But yet, with the giving of power, the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, these were the same men that they stood before the Sanhedrin and were told that, I mean, you think about the Sanhedrin, these were all the Jewish PhDs, right? The, the, the great graybeards, the fathers, 70 of them, was it? And, and these, these men who are our forefathers in the faith, these apostles who were working class men, fishermen, right? Uh, they were the ones who preached and spoke with such boldness. What happened? That these Jewish leaders had recognized, wow, these are uneducated men, but they preach with such conviction. And what they couldn't do is they could not deny the miracle. They said, hey, listen, they admitted, hey, listen, there, there is a genuine miracle here. Everyone has seen it. All they could do is say, hey, we command you, you must not preach in this name anymore. And you look at what these men did, these apostles. What did they pray for? Hey, you guys be the judge. Whether or not it's right to obey men or to obey God, you judge that. They're saying, hey, we're going to continue obeying God. Acts 4, 29 to 31. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Here, you look at what was happening. There was opposition to them. We order you not to speak in this name anymore. What did they pray for? They didn't say, okay, you're right. You told me to shut up. I will shut up. I'm just going to crawl back under my rock and hide. No. They said, we will respond by praying and asking God to give us greater boldness. And also, we understand 
that in these prayers, there's also a prayer for justice, that God would silence those who oppose him, that any scheme, any plan that's set up against God will not succeed. Yes, lives can be taken, blood can be spilt, shame can be offered, but you realize God is the one who thwarts all those plans. And you and I are reminded of our duty to be bold for him, that we would continue doing what he has commanded us, living for his glory, bearing witness of our Lord Jesus, reminding others of the judgment to come. So this is the first point. God answers the martyr's prayers for justice. We have the second point, the first four trumpet blasts in verses 6 through 13. Let me begin reading from, um, from verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because they had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night." Here we think about these trumpet blasts. Trumpets normally are warnings that in Israel, if there was a trumpet blast, that it was, it was a warning of something, whether it be an attack or a call to action, that a trumpet blast was important. Here we have a clear allusion to the plagues of Egypt, that God's design in these Egyptian plagues was not to bring Pharaoh or the Egyptians to repentance. These plagues uh, were used by God, in fact, to harden their hearts and to bring glory to himself. In each of these plagues, God showed himself superior over the false gods of Egypt. You realize that the Egyptians were not monotheists. Uh, Israel, they were monotheists. They believed in one God. But the Egyptians believed all kinds of gods, that they believed in the God of the sun. Right? There was a solar God. That they believed Pharaoh was a god. They believed the Nile was a god. And, and each one of these plagues, God was showing, hey, listen, Egypt, I'm superior to all of your false gods. So also, when you think about uh, these trumpet blasts, as we go through the seven of them, at the end of chapter 9, it speaks about how men refused to end their false worship, their idolatry. Here, the opening of the seals versus the trumpet blasts. So earlier we had the opening of the, of the seals. This is the seventh seal. We have a similar pattern. But there's a sense in which the opening of the seals were more concerned about the effect on Christians. So it was about the Christians, right? That's why we have the fifth seal and the predicament of the martyrs. You know, the, 
the sixth seal was the terror that came upon uh, the dwellers of the land. That this was the terror uh, fall on us, uh, mountains and rocks, right? Uh, but who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb and the one on the throne? That this is a, in a, a reference to the final judgment. But we see that the trumpet blast, in contrast to the seals that were focused on the effect on Christians, we have the trumpet blast more focused on the judgment and the punishment of unbelievers. The later trumpet blast focus on the torment, then, on those uh, without the seal of God on their foreheads. This is in Revelation 9.4. So we have the first trumpet. There followed hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Uh, what, we, what we'll see here is similarities to Egypt, the Egyptian plague of hail, and also the mention of a third. See how often the third is mentioned? That God didn't take the whole, he took a third. That there was mercy even in what God does here. The second trumpet, a great mountain burning with fire, thrown into the sea. Hey, this, uh, this sounds a lot like uh, Psalm 46, doesn't it? that though the mountain should, should be thrown into the sea, right? that we have our peace, we have our comfort, and our safety in our Lord. With the, the second trumpet, a third of the sea became blood. It sounds a lot like the Egyptian plague of the Nile bleeding. The third trumpet, verses 10 through 11. Notice the... Uh, the repeated pattern of the first three trumpets speaking about the theme of fire. There followed hail and fire for the first trumpet. Second, and something like a great mountain burning with fire. And then the third trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch, which is fire. Do you realize that for all people, there is an inherent need. There is an inherent desire for stability. There's a sameness. We, 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 on one hand, we, we don't like uh, monotony, but at, this, at the other hand, we need to have a, a, an order. We need to have a stability. Imagine not having access to your home, whether uh, there's a fire alarm at your house, or your house gets flooded. Uh, going, being able to go back to the same place to rest your head and sleep. That these are some of the common stabilities that we take for granted. Men naturally look for stability. And carnal men will look, for, look to the world for stability, whether it be society, or nature, or creation. I don't know if you've noticed, but you look at uh, how God is taking away that stability. That in society, uh, the description is how quickly are the goalposts moving? But the standards are changing not by the years or the decades, it's by the month. <coughs> and the world will always have terminologies like justice, like love, uh, like compassion. But they're going to define it in different ways than what God has given us. We ought not to take the world's definitions, correct? We ought to take God's definitions for those things. God is sending these cataclysmic events in order to take away the created order stability. So when you think about 
uh, the things that are happening, this mountain falling into the sea, and uh, this blazing like a torch. It's taking away the created order of stability. Do you remember uh, that, uh, that play or that movie, Annie? Right? She sang that song, The Sun Will, Sun Will Come Out Tomorrow. Right? Well, you realize that the created order, God gives that repetition, that sun does come out each morning. But you realize that we take that for granted. The sun may not come out tomorrow. I, I'm not trying to be a doomsday person, but I, what I am saying is that God is entirely in control of created order. We take it for granted. Uh, the, the, the people who are of the world, say, look at the, they look at the hills and say, hey, these hills have been here forever. And, and it, sounds, it sounds a lot like you know, Second Peter talking about the scoffers. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And, and what is happening? What is happening in the description of the, the, uh, the blast of these trumpets? God is saying it's not continuing as they were. Things are different. The things that we take for granted, they're not there. Second Peter 3.7 continues, But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You see this mention of fire? The mention of these three trumpet blasts and how all of those refer to fire. So we're seeing fire in those images. And here it's a reminder that the fire, the final judgment of the last day will come. Where is your stability? Is it in the fact that the sun will come out tomorrow? That at the end of the day, the sun will set, and then you go to bed, and then tomorrow morning, the sun will come out? Certainly your stability must be in something far greater than that. What God does to the non-Christian, to the unbeliever, is in these scenes, he, he takes away their earthly stability. He does it as a reminder, judgment is coming. For you and for me, those of you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, he also takes away that earthly stability. It's so that we might say, you know what? The only true stability that we have is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the anchor. He is the anchor of our souls. We must, we must be yoked to him. We must be united to Christ by faith. We have also the fourth trumpet. The fourth trumpet in verse 12. This affected the light bearers, the sun, the moon, the stars, and the effect was darkness. Very similar to the Egyptian plague of darkness. The description there in Exodus 10 is that it was a darkness that could be felt. You could feel the darkness. The understanding of that was that it wasn't merely a literal darkness. The description that we ought to understand is that there was a literal darkness for three days. Here, the mention of darkness is also symbolic. That there is a spiritual darkness. There is a cultural, there is a 
mental darkness. We see the effect of this darkness. The effect of darkness, if, if you and I try to walk around as if it were day when it's dark, what will happen? We will stumble and fall. Obvious things that are there are no longer obvious. You see that this darkness is when men call good evil and evil good. Isaiah 5 talks about this. They will, they will look at evil and say that's good. And they'll look at good and say that's evil. This darkness results in fear. It results in terror. It results in hopelessness. It results in depression. Why is it that you look at this whole mental health field, why is it so lucrative right now? It's because these issues of fear, terror, hopelessness, depression, that they are there. It's the result, not of mental problems or physical problems. It's the result, the core issue is spiritual darkness. Do you see this dire need? The longing for hope. The need for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's during these times that all kinds of false messiahs will also come. False religions. There will always be some other false religion coming, presenting itself. But you realize in these particular times of darkness, that is when Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, that is when he shines all the brighter. The truth of the gospel is seen. Not when all the other options are eliminated. It's when all the other options, the falsehoods, the pseudos are there that Jesus shows himself that much brighter. Are you trusting Jesus, the light of the world? You realize he comes, particularly at a time when there is great darkness. You must be trusting in Jesus, who is the light of the world. Not trusting in ourselves, not trusting in our jobs, not trusting in the church. Ultimately, it is our Lord Jesus who saves. He saves by a great deliverance. He saves sinners. Because he himself is that perfect sacrifice for sinners. He freely offered himself on the cross so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. And the very righteousness that God requires of us, he lived the perfect life. And he freely gives his righteousness to you. And he commands that you would receive it by faith. In verse 13, you have... You have a warning in verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. What this eagle crying out in a loud voice is saying is, hey, listen, the first four trumpets, those aren't scary. It's the ones that will come that are truly scary. You, you remember, it was before my time, abbreviation BTO, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Perhaps some of you remember it. 1974, they sang the song, you ain't, you ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Right? In other words, this eagle was saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. These, these three remaining trumpet blasts, they are the ones that's going to bring greater suffering and torment. Here, we think about God's announcing of judgment. Whenever judgment is being announced, it is actually mercy to sinners. God doesn't need to announce judgment. He can just send judgment. 
So the announcement of judgment is an opportunity for mercy. With all the darkness, the fear, the terror, the hopelessness, the depression, the anguish of today, it's a reminder that true hope is found in Jesus Christ. True rest, true comfort, stability, and hope are found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is also a timely reminder to all of us about our duty, about the necessity, and about our privilege to go to God in prayer. Prayer is not worthless. Prayer is not a waste of time. Here we think about the various methods people have. People talk about growing a church. Hey, where's prayer? Hey, make sure you cut down that in the worship service that prayer can't be long. It can't be more than two minutes long. And, and why even bother with those prayer meetings? Is growing a church really that important? Well, you would think as people are converted, the church will grow. Here, we think about how this uh, seeker-sensitive movement and the illumination of prayer, this is the wrong direction. What we see in the book of Acts is that especially when there was persecution, that there was a dependence on God in prayer. Here, we see that the place where they gathered was shaken. That you and I would be those who come together for prayer. And that we acknowledge that God is the one who does the mighty work. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. You have a duty, but you also have a privilege. That we ask of God for our daily bread. How much more so should we bring to him the travails of our soul? That we will bring those to him in prayer. We also ought to remember that a delayed answer from God does not mean no answer. It's simply a delayed answer. And you who are growing in faith, growing in maturity, we ought not to be like spiritual toddlers. You and I must realize that just because God doesn't provide us an answer away, right away, it doesn't mean he's not answering. We see even in this passage, the answer of when will you avenge the blood of the martyrs the answer has already been provided, and it's been foretold to us here that time will come when the fire will be poured out on the earth. That you and I ought to live in such a way, the worst they can do is they take our lives. We ought to fear those. We ought to fear him who can throw body and soul into hell. That we ought to worship him. That we ought to trust in him. That whatever they take from us here, we realize we have our immediate satisfaction in Jesus, that we will be united to him in heaven. May we go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God.